a story Fill up the pages Sing a little song Keep me around Keep me with you Right by your night sand Keep me around As long as you can Okay, three, two, one, go. Need to record this episode quick here. Got this new mic set up and can't have the heater on. It's all going to be picked up. So let's start us out on season two of ADZ Storytelling. Maddie, what's that expression I'm seeing? How are we feeling? I mean, when you're wiser, when you're older. I'm very excited for season two. It is January now. Thank you for waiting, people, for our hiatus. For for a hiatus, we did like, you know, the new year and yeah, a, a big wedding of my friends. And then also like illness and and other things that not just strife and hardship and war and sickness, just like stuff, all um, the things that go with the new year. But now we're on season two, which is really exciting. So thank you, everyone that listened to season one. And now we're on season two and like, yay, season two. And that's where we're at. Yeah, we've, we're chock a block full of new knowledge, new resources. I myself am older. I feel more wizened and kind of dehydrated and like a, like a fine raisin. Also, I'm noticing now that my hand is blue. Yeah, that's from work, that. though. My hand? No, I think that's, I think that's from a uh, hair toner in the shower. Oh, maybe. Yeah. We're just going to move past it. Well, I think we're not maybe... going to dive into those questions today. What questions are we going to be diving into? Well, other than the fact that the time is ticking, like you mentioned about the coldness in our apartment, because we yeah, because we have mics that are so like fine tuned and sensitive now that you can hear my nipple rustling against the inside of my shirt. <laughs> also, I can hear our tiny space heater, and we've covered all our other space heaters with furniture because they're like really inconvenient inconveniently placed so you call it inconvenient placement i call it aesthetic choice yeah either way so what if we can't have internal heat i mean we can but we don't but we don't because our furniture and placement looks nice our furniture is more important yeah to this anxiety household for sure but not our physical comfort (laughs) okay so so just so everyone knows this is add storytelling uh, my name is Tucker. Our host, as always, is the beautiful and diaphanous and neurodivergent Maddie. Hello. She's sitting across from me. Now we each have our own mic. We each have our own mic. We'll see if that changes much. Hopefully it helps make Tucker louder and yeah. me the People same. have been clamoring for it, and I've been listening. You want more me. You want clearer me. You want me that you can really hear when I struggle and Fight my way through the burps to just keep talking. That's the fact we all crave. No one really wants to hear that part, though. No, but they they end up they end up hearing it. They well, but no, because I cut it out, so we, oh, right. so they don't. Well, I cut all that out. Are you gonna cut this out? Maybe. Don't. This is a peek behind the curtain. I mean, we're already at three minutes of just talking about nothing, which yeah, I know well, that people have missed us. This is season two. Where have we been? It's been a month. What have we been doing? Things around. Been cold and wet. We've been reading books. But you know, yeah, people have been yearning. For this extra, this extra content is what people need to feel reacquainted and reconnected with us. I hope so. 
because it, it's happening. Did you get it? It has happened. Yeah. What are we talking about? So this is classic ADD storyteller. Yeah. Lore in the sense that it the, the episode is about art that comes to life. Oh. Okay. And there's two base myths that. Like Toy Story. No, those are toys. Toys are art. This is like artist stuff that comes to life. Like like paintings, sculptures, drawings. A golem. Printing presses, etc. So. Many of the things in Beauty and the Beast would be considered art. Furniture is art. They all came to life. So two base myths that we're going with. Beauty and the Beast. There's the magic paintbrush, which is retold by MJ York. That's the one that we have. And then also the Pygmalion myth. Pygmalion. Pygmalion. Is that the one starring Nicolas Cage currently in theaters? No. That's just Pig. So sources for today before we really get started. Teen Titans Wiki. Wikipedia. Really? SpongeBob Wiki. Okay. This, this BuffyFandom.com. This is all boding well. Sharon Chang's How Ex Machina Abuses Women of Color and No One Cares Because It's Smart. Is that the actual title? Yes. Okay. And Melian from Bullfinch's M- mythology, mythology by Thomas <laughs> Bullfinch. And for some reason, I couldn't read mythology. It was like I picked up the book. Maddie's and... holding the book in front of her right now. <laughs> just like and the only two words on the cover are Bullfinch's mythology, and she just out of the gate nailed the you know kind of uncommon name bullfinches well it's like i nailed bullfinches and then i paused like did i really say that is that is that that the real name of it yeah i guess and it's a beautiful like gold-leafed book that i got from our dear friend tahara and it's in use for this episode which is awesome and so your goody goody like sources citing nature as you undercutting your own reveals here that have been such a wild thing to come up against. The fact that we're going to talk about Spongebob and Teen Titans. Well, I guess Teen Titans, that's part of the course with you. But like, I wouldn't have expected Spongebob at any time. Cite your sources later. You're such a good person. You always have to go out of the gate with those. Well, I don't want to seem too original, do I? No. Yeah, that's a, that's a problem you have. I guess. I just don't want anyone to feel like they're not credited. <laughs> yeah, which you can... Anyway, the first tale we're going to talk about, Magic Paintbrush. So, it's about art coming to life in an older Chinese folktale. So, the version that we have, there's many versions, is from 2012. But it was originally published as an animated stop-motion film in China, in Shanghai. And, like... It's an animated stop-motion film? That's right. Have you seen it? No. When did it come out? So, the first one, there's two versions. The first one came out in 1954. And it's called Ma Lang and His Magic Brush. And in 1955, the second one was called Magic Brush also. And it's also interchangeably called Magic Pen or Magic Pen. So Magic Pen or, mo- or what? Magical Pen. Mm. Magic or Magic. Okay. Cool. So this is the first myth. Magic Paintbrush. It's very wholesome. And we'll, we'll slowly go from really wholesome to not so wholesome. As the episode goes along. So, Just like life itself. Indeed. Once upon a time, a boy named Ma Ling Once lived in China. In Italy, then it starts up being Ma Ling was an orphan. He was poor, but he was polite and he was kind, and he wished to help other people. He had no one to take care of him. Oh, that's so sad. 
He gathered firewood and herded cattle to earn his keep. Why would he herd the cattle? Herd. With a D. More than anything else, Ma Ling wished to become a painter, but his clothes were shabby and he had no money. No painter would teach him. And he did not have enough money to buy paints or a paintbrush. Ma Ling asked the village schoolmaster if he could have a small old brush, but the schoolmaster refused. What can an orphan boy like you know about painting, he sneered. But Ma Ling was still it's determined. It's true, you gotta have painting, or parents in order to paint. Everybody knows that. Still determined to be a painter. Yeah, but not going because he's an orphan. So he scratched pictures of mountains and oceans in the mud. This is like Picasso. He took branches it, after they it? burned. Well, there's like all this mythology about Picasso. I don't know. Being, what, being too poor and like using dirt and sand? Yeah. Really? I haven't heard any of that. Well, maybe it's a different book and I just think it's Picasso. Anyway. Oh, it could be. I mean, just because I, I don't know. He took branches after they burned in a fire and used the black ends to draw birds and deer. Charcoal. Mm-hmm. He even wet his finger and used the water to draw flowers on fish. Spit. And fish on rocks. Probably just a river. No. Yeah. One night, after a long day of working and drying, Ma Ling fell into a deep sleep. What was he doing for work? Well, you weren't paying attention, but it was herding cattle and Oh, right. He hurt. He hurt. Yeah. I was paying attention. I asked. Gathered what? firewood. That's not really a job, though, is it? Sure it is. This is ancient China. It was 1954. No, that's when the stop motion film was. I know. So, he dreamed he was visited by a kind old man. In the dream, the old man handed Ma Ling a paintbrush. Morgan Freeman. This paintbrush can do much good, whispered the old man, and the dream faded away. When Ma Ling awoke, he was grasping a paintbrush. It was small and old, and it was missing half its bristles. But it was a paintbrush, and it made Ma Ling very happy. Ma Ling took ashes and water and made ink. He dipped the brush and then began to paint on flat white rock. His brushstrokes quickly outlined a bird. When he completed the final feather, the bird chirped and flew away. My Ling could hardly believe it. He thought he must be dreaming, so he decided to test the brush again. Once again, he dipped his brush in the ink. Once again, he began to paint on the flat white rock. His brushstrokes quickly outlined a deer. When he added the last spot, the deer sprang from the rock and leapt away. It is a magic paintbrush, exclaimed Ma Ling. He went to the village and began to help people. When he saw a child, he painted a toy. When he saw a hungry person, he painted rice and tea. And when he saw a farmer, he painted cows and new iron plows. With help from Ma Ling and his magic paintbrush, the people of the village began to prosper. Before long, word of Ma Ling and his magic paintbrush reached the emperor. The emperor was a greedy man. He wanted all the riches and all the magic in the world for himself. He wanted Ma Ling's magic paintbrush badly. Soldiers came to Ma Ling's village and grabbed Ma Ling. Ma Ling held tight to his paintbrush. The soldiers took the boy to the emperor's palace. When they arrived, Ma Ling bowed to the emperor. How can I be of service, O wise emperor, he asked. Paint me a dragon, ordered the emperor. Ma Ling realized the emperor was cruel and greedy. Instead of a dragon, he painted a spiny lizard. The lizard flicked its tongue and sauntered off. Essentially a dragon. A flightless dragon. Tiny dragon. Like all lizards, flightless dragons. The emperor was furious that Ma Ling had disobeyed him. He took the magic paintbrush. He had Ma Ling thrown in a dungeon. Then the emperor gave the magic paintbrush to a famous artist. The emperor ordered the artist to paint him piles of gold coins. Actually, that makes a good question. So these things, they were coming to life, yes, but were they rendered well? Or is it all subjective as to like what he thought was a deer and what he thought was a bird that flew off and scampered away? They looked god-awful. 
Just like stick figures of said animals. It looks nice in the illustration. The artist obeyed, but every coin he painted turned into an ordinary rock. The emperor realized the paintbrush only worked for Ma Ling. Soldiers brought Ma Ling to the emperor again. The emperor said, Ma Ling, if you paint what I ask, I will send you home to the village. Oh, is this the part with the intensive torture? <laughs> Ma Ling knew the emperor would never let him go home as long as he had the magic paintbrush. So he threatens his family. He's an orphan. Right. Damn it. That's the, oh, that's the edge. He pretended to agree with the emperor. The emperor made his first request. Paint me a tree made of silver and a mountain made of gold, he ordered. The soldiers brought soft white paper and fine colored inks. Gotta get that soft paper. Ma Ling began his task. And the emperor looked over his shoulder. First, Ma Ling painted a wide ocean. The emperor exclaimed, where is my tree? Have patience, Ma Ling replied. Then he painted an island in the ocean. On the island, there were trees made of silver and mountains made of gold. That's better, said the emperor. Now paint me a boat so I can cross the ocean. So Ma Ling painted a fine sailboat. It had large red sails and a dragon's head on its prow. The emperor approved of Ma Ling's work. He boarded the boat. Now send me a breeze to blow me to the island, he demanded. So Ma Ling added wispy curved lines and the boat slowly moved away from shore. Faster, faster, cried the emperor, impatient with greed. So Ma Ling drew more lines and made them longer and bolder than the first lines. The wind blew harder, and the boat moved more quickly toward the island, but the emperor still called for more wind. Ma Ling added more and more lines until the wind blew with strength of ten hurricanes. The ship sped toward the island over the choppy sea, but then the strongest gust of all caught the ship's sail. The ship flipped over and sank. The emperor swam ashore on the island, alone with his trees of silver and his mountains of gold. And Ma Ling traveled from village to village, painting toys for children, tea and rice for the hungry, and beautiful birds and flowers for everyone's delight. Wow. The end. So who, who filled the power vacuum after the death of the evil emperor? Hmm, good question. Yeah, was there like a gritty Nolan remake of this where the whole epilogue with the civil discord and strife that befell this whole kingdom when their evil emperor just went and died? Yeah, no, there's no, like, consequences, because this is a children's tale. Because it's a fable, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and saying, don't be greedy like the emperor. Yeah, no. I'm currently also from Terra. Same same gift bundle. Terra gifted me all of the tales of the Brothers Grimm. Not all the tales, but 50 of the Brothers Grimm tales retold by Philip Pullman. And yeah, that's the whole, like, theme in these types of stories, is that characters are just two-dimensional, plot moves quickly, and there's not a lot of extraneous kind of information. You just kinda, no, no, no. You just you accept it points. as it is. Yeah, yeah. It's for children. So. Black and white. My first th- thought upon hearing all this was, and I did look it up. I don't know the state off the top of my head, but the story Harold and the Purple Crayon. That was written in 1955. Is that a just direct ripoff from the animated film? Quite possibly. Yeah. I'm, I literally have no idea, though. But I mean, timing wise and content, me thinks that. Well, the first famous... one was 1954. The second yeah, one was 1955. Well, that is a wild speculation that you've introduced here. It is. It's wild and uh, untethered conjecture. Untethered but... with sources, indeed. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not playing the source game like you. You can't wink. wink. You can't wink. This is wink. an audio medium. You can't <laughs> wink. That doesn't. Doesn't translate here. I said wink. You did after about two winks. <laughs> Also, 
this yeah. is totes a thing that I reminds don't, me. Don't like any of that. You don't like me saying totes. What's wrong with totes? Okay, so I think this very interesting tale mm-hmm. inspired the renowned SpongeBob episode Doodlebob. Oh, this is the tie-in. Okay. You know, Doodlebob. Yeah, it's yeah. So there's a magic pencil, and the episode's called Frank and Doodle, right? Uh-huh. And then SpongeBob's like familiar with the property, yeah. Drawing a bunch of stuff, and he's like, the magic pencil creates a real thing in real life, and then etc. And they're all sand colored because he's drawing him in the sand. Okay, this all goes back to our production meeting for season two, where you're saying you were you were telling me you want to appeal to the Gen X tweens, and what's more appealing to them than SpongeBob? So that's why you're shoehorning in this SpongeBob story, yeah? Well, I actually don't know if Gen Z is interested in the SpongeBob episode because it's before they were born, probably. Is Gen Z Gen Gen Z? Yeah, no, no, Gen Z is obsessed with SpongeBob. Yeah, but this is like the from the olden days. This is from two thousand one. I thought they were just obsessed with SpongeBob at all. Maybe I don't know. This episode is from two thousand one, so SpongeBob's like, okay, I'm gonna pull a prank on Squidward. I'm gonna draw me, and then. He's going to knock on the door and Squidward answer, but then it won't be Spongebob. That's that's the prank. Uh-huh. Because Spongebob's really good at it. And then yeah. uh, the Doodlebob just takes the pencil and runs away and starts drawing their own stuff. And then it's like, takes like a horror turn. Yeah, I do recall this. Where like, they can't find the pencil or like erase Doodlebob. And Doodlebob's like running around speaking gibberish and stuff. And then eventually they get the pencil back and then it's like a, a scuffle and then he erases most of Doodlebob's. But then the arm escapes unbeknownst to Spongebob and then he goes to sleep. And then it's like the Doodlebob crawls with one hand back and then redraws himself and then wakes up and he's like, Doodlebob! And then, yeah. Not only it, it's pulling from the magic paintbrush, but it's also just a retelling of the classic evil twin story. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's just thousands of those. Bizarro, Spongebob, Cosmic Havoc. I mean, there's even one in Gravity Falls with the copier. Oh, yeah, it's just like the copier thing. It's exactly. Yeah, totally. I mean, but I mean, tons of shows have done that. Oh, tons yeah. Tons of books have done that and tons of movies. Yeah. But yeah, there is something, there is a, Daddy's favorite term used all the time, through line there. Oh, that's the, what Tucker says all the time. He yeah, loves the word through line. Bob and Magic Paintbrush, but. Well, Doodle Bob, eventually he gets uh, SpongeBob's like, oh, he gets stuck on a piece of paper and his leg stuck, and then he becomes two dimensional on his leg. So yeah, then I've seen the SpongeBob, episode. SpongeBob like Maddie. slaps a book on top of him, and then he becomes a happy drawing in two dimensional space once again. Yeah, I know. I've seen it. I was there on 9 11 and I watched the episode. Well, maybe we have Gen Zs and they haven't watched an episode. All they do, I think, is watch SpongeBob on TikTok. I don't know. It seems to be all- they they love SpongeBob. They love Shrek. <laughs> Both, I believe, came out in 2001. Both are direct products of Dick Cheney's war. The other thing, which I'll say through line now, this one is Do a through it, line between nice. the previous myth of the Magic Paintbrush and the next myth we're going to talk about, which is Big Million. And can you define the difference between a myth and a fable? Nope. Or, nah. And it's a myth. <laughs> <laughs> Can you the not myth- really? Because I'm realizing right now that, uh, like, gun to my head, I couldn't. Then I probably should be. 
Well, the the myth is Pygmalion, but the thing that well, we're myth referencing is more of a cultural thing. The fable is just an actual source text story. I think that might be right. Through line, I think the magic ba- paintbrush slash Pygmalion inspired the antagonist in the last Teen Titans movie, Trouble in Tokyo, and it was the final end of the Teen Titans series that was the good <sighs> one before Teen Titans Go. It's based on the '80s comic series. Maddie is about to dive in. If this is indicative of anything, it's that Maddie is about to dive into a whole Titans tangent. Well, yeah, I'm going to explain how it relates. That's what I was going to do. That's why I brought it up. Uh So, in the Teen Titans movie, I'm not going to spoil all of it if you haven't seen it. Like I did, what is it? Like 12 years old? It's very old. Then I think it's okay to spoil, Maddie. So, I don't think anyone's going to come at you for that one. This name I don't like, but the antagonist is called Brushogun. What's wrong with that? I don't know. I just don't like it. Oh, you just like you don't like. I just feel like like they didn't try. Feel of it. I don't know. Brushogun. Yeah, it's like Like, they put Shogun together with brush. It's weird. And people think Teen Titans is good. It is good. The name is not good. That's what I'm saying. Okay. So anyway. That's fair. I remember that one. People think Hideo Kojima is a good writer as well, but doesn't he have someone that's named like Gun Badman? He has a lot of weird names. Are you talking about the video game person? Yeah. Isn't there like a Hojima name generator? Yeah. I mean, that's the Brian David Gilbert thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's an antagonist, and he's creating drawings that come to life. And they have an in-episode slash movie folklore about how Rushagun came to life, and Raven found it in a book, obviously. Rushagun was an ordinary artist during his youth, and he soon fell in love with the image of a woman he had painted. He used a dark magic spell to bring his creation to life, but the spell came at a terrible price. Just to clarify, this is all Teen Titans lore? This is. Cool. It cursed his body and transformed him into a paper-skinned, ink-blooded being, Rushagun. He could create ink minions in a variety of colors when drawing in this magical ink. The spell ultimately turned against the artist. He was then basically capable of bringing any creation that he wanted to life, but he suddenly disappeared. There's a reason why he's important in the movie, which again, I'm not spoiling it totally. I mean, once, and also, again, it does not matter. But it's the Teen Titans movie. The Titans track him down to a comic book publishing years. factory where they discover Brushogun tap wired in a cursed printing press that taps into his powers to create enemies the Titans have faced. I actually think it will help the podcast if you just spoil it and finish the thought here. I did. I just did that. No, but that's... So what wasn't spoiled then? Well, you'll find out. No, I won't because I'm never going to watch Teen Titans. I don't care at all. So there are like these inky beings that they've been fighting and then once they hit them hard enough, they basically turn into ink. So they're like, what the fuck? Oh, faceless CGI army? Yeah, cool. but then it's Brushogun's thing. So then he sent some of his minions to um, where the Titans live to bring them to Tokyo, and then once they got there, then they find out that he's basically been enslaved, and it's like the monsters that he's making are like his thing, but then there's like a bigger bad guy that's controlling him. In a DC property? Yeah. What? Uh-huh. Wow. The fact that they did a whole mythology of it, and it sounds exactly almost like Pygmalion, and then also like the You Master haven't Master. talked to us about Pygmalion yet. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. I mean, except for the fact that 
he doesn't seem like a bad person, which I do feel like Pygmalion. Hmm. Pygmalion or Brusho Man? Brusho Gun. Seems like a good person, and Pygmalion seems like an asshole, which we're going to get into right now. Now that I've made my really, like, intense opinion that I think Pygmalion's a bad person, then we're going to read the myth, and you can decide for yourself if you think Pygmalion's a good person. Yippee-skippy-do-dippy. Can't wait to meet this pig boy. This is a real book. Here we go, Pygmalion. Pygmalion saw so much blame in women that he came to at last abhor the sex and resolved to live unmarried. Okay, there's already a lot here. He was a sculptor and had made with wonderful skill a statue of ivory, so beautiful that no living woman came anywhere near it. It was indeed a perfect semblance of a maiden that seemed to be alive and only prevented from moving by modesty. His art was so perfect that it concealed itself and its product product looks like the workmanship of nature pygmalion admired his own work and at last fell in love with the counterfeit creation oftentimes he laid his hand upon it as if to assure himself whether or not it was living and could not even believe that it was only ivory he caressed it and gave it presents such as young girls love bright shells and polished stones what was the first present bright shells bright shells yeah I thought you said something about love? Such as young girls love? Yeah, is that one of the presents? Bright shells, polished stones, little birds and flowers of various hues, beads and amber. Those are things that girls love. Ah, presents that young girls love. Yes. I thought you said presents like young girls love. Such as young girls. Okay, so he wasn't bestowing upon these sculpture young girls love. No. That was my confusion. This really clears things up. He put raiment on its limbs and jewels on its fingers and necklace about its neck. To the ears he hung earrings and springs of pearls, strings of pearls upon the breast. Her dress became her, and she looked not less charming than when unattired. He laid her on a couch spread with cloths of Tyrian dye and called her his wife and put her head upon a pillow of the softest feathers as if she could enjoy their softness. The festival of Venus was at hand, a festival celebrated with great pomp at Cyprus. Victims were offered, the altar smoked, and the odor of incest filled the air. When Pygmalion had performed his part in the solemnities, he stood before the altar and timidly said, Ye gods, who can do all things, give me, I pray you, for my wife. He dared not say, my ivory virgin, but said instead, one like my ivory virgin. Why, why, why that quantifier? Indeed, you, you virgin. Don't, you don't yeah. need mm. that. Also, is it, is it bad that the live-action Hollywood version of this i'm I'm imagining and no disrespect intended but I, I i see jeff goldblum in this role in a good way i really don't see how that's even remotely possible no i just i think he would bring it i think it's a miscast a miscast on that one yeah that's a misfire yeah that's a that's a pass that's a hard pass from you that's a hard pass all right i disagree mm-hmm. minus who was present at the festival heard him and knew the thought he would have uttered as an omen Paul Giamatti caused the flame on the altar to shoot up thrice in a fiery point to the air. When he returned home, he went to see a statue, and leaning over the couch, gave a kiss to the mouth. It seemed to be warm. He pressed his lips again, and he laid his hand upon the limbs. The ivory felt soft to his touch, and yielded to his fingers like the wax of Hymetris. While he stands astonished and glad, though doubting, and fears he may be mistaken, again and again with the lover's ardor, he touches the object of his hopes. It was indeed alive, 
The veins, when pressed, yielded to the finger and again resumed their roundness. Then at last the votary of Venus found words to thank the goddess, and pressed his lips upon lips as real as his own. The virgin felt the kisses and blushed, and opening her timid eyes to the light, fixed them at the same moment on her lover. Venus blessed the nuptial she had formed, and from this union Paphos was born, from whom the city sacred to Venus received its name. Hmm. Schiller, in his poem The Idealist, applies this tale of Pamelian to the love of nature in a youthful heart. I mean, do you want to hear the poem? Or you I do. I'll hit me with that poem. Okay. As once with prayers and passion flowing, Pamelian embraced the stone, till from the frozen marble glowing, the light feeling over him shone. So did I clasp with young devotion bright nature to a poet's heart, till breath and warmth and vital motion seemed through the statue formed to dart. And then, in all my order, ardor sharing, I keep saying order, ardor sharing, the silent form expression found, returned my kiss of youthful daring, and understood my heart's quick sound. Then lived for me the bright creation, the silver rill with song was rife, the trees, the roses, shared sensation, an echo of my boundless life. The poem is whatever. It's it's there. It's nice. Yeah, the poem is kind of superfluous. Um, and you know what's funny? In the Wikipedia article, which I'm sure is really this is one tale of Pygmalion. There are other tales where Oh, I'm sure there have been hundreds. Oh, there's a lot. Uh where he begins to hate women after encountering a sex worker that's just like living their life. And then he's like Women suck. <laughs> so, um, but then he gets rewarded by the goddess of love to get, you know, just a, a creation. Aphrodite. Yeah, Venus. Yeah. Yes, uh, Venus is the Roman yeah, Aphrodite. Is, yeah. Yeah. So that's that. Well, lovely. I now see, retroactively, why you mentioned during your Teen Titans uh, summary that you didn't like this person. It all makes sense now. Well, I do think I feel that like I'm part of the club. Yeah. Of disliking this pig man in his piggish ways. What do you think would be the modern version of a Pygmalion? Uh, an incel. An incel. So a super misogynistic person. I'm thinking, uh, uh, just I'm thinking Gamergate, kind of like someone that's very talented. Someone like I feel like it's someone that worked for like Studio Santa Monica and created some of the breathtaking environments in God of War, and they're like they're just incredible 3D artists. But then you're like, oh, have you ever dated a woman? They're like, fuck women, bro. I fucking Nah. Nah. And then you're just like, oh, wow. I thought you were a very nuanced and kind of a multifaceted individual with a lot of opinions and, you know, well articulated and for- formulated beliefs on history and mythology and architecture and art, but, oh, you're just a piece of shit, huh? All right. Are you giving, what are the things he gave his, his statue bread? Uh, he gave her. Like little flowers and birds of various hues and hues, and like a necklace and rings and nice fabrics, you know. Yeah, I do like clothes that. and not clothes. What's an example of a not clothes? Is that like 
Well, they like said, oh, chats. like, she looked really well in clothes, and also when you took them off, essentially. Yeah, not clothes are pretty good. I found um, that to be a thing I prefer as well. So I have actually two modern examples that I think... I bet one of them's who's Ex Machina. Well, it's just Ex Machina. Yeah, Ex Machina is number two, but that one's like a whole thing, so I'll do the first one first. Buckle up. Yeah. So first one that made me think of was... Um, this one Buffy episode called I Was Made to Love You. You know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, that Buffy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That wasn't there. I thought you meant the other one, yeah. In case it was before your time. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know I'm older than you, By Joss Whedon. He's in the news today. For the listeners, maybe we have younger listeners. There's no chance of that. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Annie Hoosel. There's this guy named Warren. And he created... What's Warren like? I mean, he's, he's just kind of whatever. He created a robot to be his girlfriend, to love and obey him. So then he eventually became bored with her just because she was only programmed to love him and he didn't think to program, you know, like, her own... Basically, she just gets bored of her and then realizes he doesn't actually love the robot he created to love him and he just, like, left her alone in a room in her basement or something and then just left her to power down and eventually die without him, essentially. Like, I mean, it's um, also of, like, Sally from Nightmare for Christmas. It wasn't necessarily meant for, like, carnal love or direct affection, but she was, like, created to be a subservient kind of domestic partner. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, she then escapes. Sorry, you just derail. He, she escapes and then tries to find him and then runs into Buffy and the and the gang and then Buffy fights her and then she's super strong and stuff for some reason because she's like a fancy robot and then, uh, you know, Warren's off with his now real human girlfriend at a college party, basically like lies and said he's in love with Buffy now, so whatever, because he's just trying to like get rid of her and then she slowly dies on a swing, runs out of batteries. That's it. So. Cool, Joss. Yeah, I mean, the level of misogyny is pretty evident here because men are literally creating wait, something. Wait, 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 hold up. You're saying Joss Whedon has misogynistic underlying, like, tendencies or subtext to his work. Well, we need to back I wasn't that actually. Up with some hard evidence. I wasn't actually saying that. In totality, I'm just saying that this episode in particular. No, no, no! Don't don't go using a broad brush here. Use an umbrella. Well, because please God, I don't like Joss Whedon, but yeah, no, I'm not gonna say all of that right now of that sort of thing. And but... the dear listener, I, uh, I I'm speaking as though I am incredulous, but I uh, th- these are my beliefs. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Well, Pygmalion, everything worked out well for him. He, they got married and everything's oh, happy, donkey, hunky-dory. He well, just misogynist gets what he wants, a not-real woman. Yeah, but I mean, there's plenty of Golem stories where it works out for their creator. Yeah. Huh. So this is a thing where you might care about spoilers. Because it's Ex Machina. No, once again, this is on me. The fact that I haven't seen it yet, that's my fault. It's been out for fucking ever. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, 2015. Yeah. Spoil away. Okay, so... Am I bummed out I haven't seen it yet? A little bit. Is that my fault? Yeah. 
Are you, I mean, are you, you I might don't not care. be bummed out after I tell you why I don't like it. No, Lance, I mean, I've already, <laughs> I've already, Maddie, if there's one thing you aren't, it's discreet about your opinions on things. <laughs> I've known why you don't like this movie for quite a while. Oh, well, now we're going to get a really detailed view about why I don't like it. Sounds good. And I have a, a nice scholar to help me out with that. Sharon Chang. Thanks. Yeah, you cited them earlier. Yes, I did. So let's dig into it. Ex Machina. Oscar Isaac's in it. Uh-huh. And he's the, like, really fancy software developer who created, like, the new Google, and then the other main character, quote-unquote. Isn't it that weird red-headed boy man that's also from Star Wars? Yeah, I don't know who he is. Oh, Nathan? Oscar Isaac is Nathan. And then the other guy, whose actor name I don't know, is oh, well, Caleb. Gleason, we'll say. Yeah, fine out. Keep going. <laughs> so Caleb gets chosen to go on this one-week exclusive trip to, like, stay at his boss's house, the CEO of the company, and just, like, chill out for a week, and it's in this really remote location. He has to be airdropped by a helicopter to get there, and that helicopter is just going to pick him up in a week. There's no, like, airport or anything. Oh, please. Cool. Basically, we're immediately introduced to the... um, Android? The Android Ava who is the, like, most recent AI model, and, like, Nathan's like, oh, like, you're gonna do a Turing test. You're gonna see if, like, you forget that she is human while you're interacting with this robot thing, and then we're gonna see if I've created actual artificial intelligence or not. Like, human-level artificial intelligence. Yeah. Then Nathan proceeds to be creepy as fuck, and there's, like, another person there. No, wait, hold up a minute. This is Oscar Isaac you're talking about. Oscar Isaac. I don't know how I feel about you saying Oscar Isaac's being creepy, but it's anyway. Oscar Isaac plays creepy surprisingly well, even though he is of noble bearing. <laughs> okay, wait. I I know it's a it's a, totally non it's not non sequitur. You just said it. Tell me more about that. He's of noble bearing. Well, I'm saying that like he has the air of being of noble birth or some sort of like grace and attractiveness. Are you just playing into my sensibilities because he is a perfect rendition of Euclida? Yeah, a little bit. All right, I'll take that. Oscar, he's, Oscar Isaac is a great actor, but... I was going to say, you're on first name basis? Oscar's a good, he's a good actor. My pal. <laughs> and... Mm-hmm. Where were you at? You were saying he was being creepy, and my boy is being creepy. He's creepy AF because there's another person that's living there. See, named... you're just going for those Gen Z kids. Because he is living with another person named Kyoko, and Kyoko is like his servant. And she's played by uh, a British Japanese actress. Sonoya Mizuno? Yep. Sonoya Mizuno. And there's like a lot of power abuse things. Like he, uh, well, she serves dinner and she spills wine, and then Nathan just like screams at her for spilling wine, and then she doesn't say anything ever the whole time. She hasn't said anything like the whole movie, and you're like, that's weird that this human being isn't saying anything or making any noises, and then Nathan literally just says, she doesn't speak, she doesn't speak English at all. She doesn't understand English, she doesn't speak. So she's now a mute Asian slave, essentially. And then you have this really disturbing sex scene. Is that an intentional thing? Like, is there a 
commentary with that, or no, no, I'm no. I'm assuming from your face. No, there's and no the commentary. Delivery and loading into the barrel of this. Not a tangent, but this discussion. This bullet is going to be that no, there is no subtext there. There is no underlying meaning. There is no greater purpose to it. It's just lazy script writing. Well, here, let me tell you what the author says. All right, yeah. When me, asked, I'm gonna let you. So, in an interview, this this article pulls from interviews. I'm I'm sure this is gonna alleviate all concerns I might have at the moment. So, you know, there's the racist slash sexist stereotype that like Japanese women in particular are just the are... most subservient, quiet, yeah, demure. Yeah, and they're docile. They won't rebel, Modest, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, and this is especially a Western stereotype. So Garland had this to say about stereotypes in his new film. And, um... Sometimes you do things unconsciously, unwittingly, or stupidly, I guess. And the only thing embedded... The only embedded point that I knew that I was making in regards to race centered around the tropes of Kyoko. Sonoya? Sonoya. Mizuno. A mute, very complicit Asian robot. Or Asian-appearing robot. Because, of course, she, as a robot, isn't Asian. But when Nathan treats the robot in a discriminatory way that he treats it, I think it should be ambivalent as to whether he actually behaves this way or if it's a very good opportunity to make him seem unpleasant to Caleb for his own advantage. <laughs> Nathan was gaslighting Caleb the whole time. Okay. And also everyone else. Okay. So, I mean, he didn't really make a point about it. There was no point that he made. No, he yeah, just he said, had a he had a chance there to say something profound or say something uh, interesting, make a commentary on prejudice, make a commentary on misogyny, or just stereotypes and the way that those factor into our preconceptions. But instead, he kind of just uh, someone pitched him the ball, and he just had to try to kick it. <laughs> In a way that just didn't make sense with the sport or uh, or was successful. Yeah. You really fucked that answer up. So then, later we find out that Kyoko is an android that Nathan programmed to have sex with him and be a servant. And he literally programmed her to not have a voice or speak or understand English. And cool. But he cool. did program her to dance seductively when music turns on. Okay, well, these are all things that I wouldn't put past a programmer to do. So, I mean, there's some real-world kind of, like, resonance there, and I guess, yeah, true-to-life writing. And then Caleb's, like, trying to talk to her and try to do this thing, and then Nathan's just like, don't bother talking with her. You're not going to get anywhere with talking with her. Why don't you dance with her instead? Once again, yeah. I mean, it feels like if we're in the world of these people... That's that sounds true to life. Yep, it's creepy. Anyway, isn't it? But not to make this a film debate podcast, but isn't that the point, Maddie? The point of what? The movie isn't it supposed to be like creepy and like a point? Like, isn't the point to be like, look at how bad these people are, and look at how they're trying to play God, but doing it through the lens of this like misogynistic, toxic masculine viewpoint where they're trying to control and fully objectify women to the point where they've made and built women to be objects 
uncontrollable. And yeah, it's unpleasant to watch, but isn't that like the, the whole message? Um, isn't it a commentary about like the nature of like toxic masculinity when unchecked and when playing God like that through technology? I mean, if you're trying to say that it's a feminist film, like you could make that argument in the sense of like, oh, we've made it so horrible. So it's like confronts people with how terrible it is. But the thing is, is that they don't really do any sort of storytelling type confrontation. So all it's really doing in the film is kind of just just like reinforcing all the stereotypes that you already have. See, yeah. And and also, once again, to reiterate for listeners, I have not seen this film. Uh, no, I all the information I'm getting about this film you have just heard. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's hard for me to say. Just based on what I was given, it's like well, that could be construed in a way that's a poignant critique of these types of individuals with that capital, with that skill set, and with that ability to create "quote unquote" life. That'd be an interesting kind of thing, but no, that's not what they're doing. I'm I'm, I'm taking this from your expression i mean i don't think they succeed if that's what they were trying to do i think they failed miserably that was the situation but i mean i don't know that that's all the side thing so the horrible abuse of kyoko like the like sex slave thing the like constant verbal abuse the sort of like programming to be all these sort of things even though she's supposed to be like at least a semi-sentient ai being he made her look asian that was like his choice to do that mm-hmm. and he's not asian mm-hmm. is a lot of problematic situation mm-hmm. i guess um also that's just the side situation so like kyoko is instrumental in a lot of ways in the sense that like she's like watching everything that's happening and she has some sort of agency later and then it's like brutally taken away because she's like basically murdered instantly as as soon as she shows some sort of defiance but the main android that we're supposed to be concerned with is Ava, and Ava is white face, white hands, white feet, otherwise android. Um, so she's the most upgraded model, and she's like the the white one. Um, but the only thing that we really know about Ava at the beginning is that she wants to get out because she's intelligent, she's being locked in a room, and that Caleb eventually just falls in love with her and is like, I want to rescue her and I'm going to fix her and then we're going to be together and it's going to be like a thing. So it's sort of like a white knight situation. A lot of things come to a head where he finds all this security footage of Nathan with previous iterations of Ava. And we see, interestingly, like a bunch of different skin color androids. So there's like a a black person who ends up having no head. Mm um the whole time that they're on and then is like just taken away murdered in some way um if we're talking about them being sentient uh and then there's a previous um asian heritage android that is played by gonna by a second i don't know how to say your last name i'm sorry um, but that's the character Jade. Um, so is this all? Is this all tying into the Pygmalion? 
kind of uh, archetype, like with these uh, masculine abusive or abuses of like created feminine imagery. The previous model that's for a previous model that he made of a like an Asian android was that Jade was like really outspoken and wanted to be let out of her cage essentially um and was defined enough that he eventually like it's implied that he just like shut her down oh. um and then upgraded to the model of Kyoko where she's mute and servant subservient see so, so yeah i mean that does feel like it's more of like a critique about the that process of this horrible designer programmer trying to find his quote-unquote perfect testament so there's like two timelines really so like he's gotten to the point where he's trying to make like an artificial sentient being but like so that's what ava is Mm. like he's trying to do artificial intelligence but then he also for himself for his own personal use created making a sex a sex one yeah Yeah. well there's so like on one end he's trying to create a perfect artificial intelligence with ava on the other hand what he actually wants and a partner is something devoid of any personality. Yeah, I mean, essentially. I think that's the weird dichotomy. It is a dichotomy. It kind of seems like we're supposed to root for Caleb because he's helping Ava to escape, and so he tricks Nathan, and then... I hope we're not supposed to root for Nathan, even though I'm just myself programmed to love. I mean, he's basically, like, isolated. He doesn't have, like, any family or friends, it seems, based on that's probably why he was chosen. And then there's, like, this weird back and forth where, like, once it's revealed that Caleb now likes Ava and wants to rescue her, there's a conflict between Nathan and Caleb. And Nathan's like, well, like, I've created the thing. She's manipulated you into helping her escape. So you've forgotten that she's a an AI thing. She's not a real person and that she's passed the Turing test, essentially. So that's, like, like... She's just trying to convince you that she likes you so that you'll help her. She doesn't actually whatever. Which, you know, we don't actually know what Ava's intentions are. But that's just as likely as the other scenario. Because artificial intelligence, if you're creating a real thing, if you're not programming an empathy or anything like that, then we have no idea. And even if they have empathy, are they going to have empathy with human things that are not theirs? Do they relate to human emotion? Yeah. Yeah. So, care at all about yeah that's the interesting part but anyway so resonating super hard ever having just read neuromancer yeah that's good shit that book so that's an interesting debate and an interesting question that AI. is like sure interesting but also like it's classic male entitlement to be like i'm gonna rescue this girl so she's gonna be with me now yeah. and you know, this AI yeah, can't possibly want anything other than him. It seems like this whole movie is just a critique of maxi- toxic masculinity. Seems like at every turn, even the person we're supposed to be rooting for, even the person that seems to have the good intentions, is still blinded by narcissistic, self-serving desires. And a, des- and a need to be the hero. Right, but is he succeeding in making that critique? Is he like, did he present that in a thing where it's like, okay, I, I haven't, once again, I haven't seen the movie, but from your concise description, it came through to me. 
Right, but I'm reading that as someone who's sensitive to abuse, who's sensitive to all of these things. Whereas, like, I'm reading it... That's true. I'm getting your filtered out uh, description and synopsis of the film. Like, would, you wouldn't be it. getting the same synopsis from someone who loved the film, would you? I'm not sure. Know. All I've heard about this movie is that it's really dark and really, like, kind of creepy look into human behavior. That seems to... I feel like I can... There is one more part that I think is super creepy. Before oh. we finish. Okay. So, this is the big spoiler. So, they trick the... Basically, the whole thing that Ava escapes is, like, every time she shuts off the power, all the doors in the house close. And they're all, like, these basically, like, unescapable doors. And the security doors close. So, she does that. They trick Nathan. And then she just leaves Caleb kind of locked in a room with Nathan's corpse. Uh, and then goes to, like, this closet of previous android bodies. And some of the models of the androids that we saw in the film are there. So, like, Jade is there. Not the black actress. Her body is, like, conspicuously missing. Um, the one that never had a head. But she sees Jade and she's like, oh, I don't have human skin. I can't blend in the human world so i'm gonna de-skin this asian android and take her skin and uh go out into the world so she literally takes off the skin of an android and puts it on her own android body and then and then leaves but she doesn't change her face or hands so she's like still wipes them um and then like may got she like makes this weird eye contact with like the the android, he's taking the skin off. That's pretty creepy. Yeah. And anyway, she, then the plane that was supposed to take Caleb picks her up, and she goes off, presumably into the human world to do whatever she wants. And then uh, Nathan bleeds out on the floor, and Caleb is trapped in the house. No one knows he's there because he's isolated. So, yep. Basically, she didn't like him. Yeah. Shocking. And Kyoko doesn't escape either. Yeah. She also gets destroyed in the process. So, shitty ending, really. Like a, well, that, that whole point was that it's for worse. That, well, that, yeah, of course that one's for worse. Well, I, know I would also agree with, I feel like Pygmalion's basically the same. Like, I, if it was like... Yeah, Pygmalion's also a shithead. They're yeah. both very, they're definitely pulling from one another. Yeah. I don't know. I don't feel good about the way that whole movie went. And I just felt icky after watching it. And I was like, I, I can don't really tell. I, you've been wearing it on your face as you described the film this evening. Yeah. Hearing Maddie's interpretations of reactions to and specifically her summaries of film has always been like some of the most uh, entertaining and heartwarming and funny shit I've ever heard. So I don't know, maybe it'd be a season two idea to kind of intertwine folk tales and themes with a kind of central movie analysis in each episode, if you'd be so interested. Because this has been kind of fun. We did kind of hang on Ex Machina all night, in a way. And I liked how the preceding information all kind of built into it and into that analysis. 
It built into how much I don't like Ex Machina. Yeah. <laughs> no, that that is clear. I feel like you're you're trying to convince me of that. Well, the annoying like, thing. Well, the annoying. I know. Thing is that everybody likes it. Everybody thinks he's so smart and he's so whatever. And then he made all these statements and he didn't make jack shit statement. He was just terrible and he did a terrible thing. Are you talking? Watched... To, are you talking about the director or the character in the movie? I both. The character in the movie is just a shitty person. who were you talking about in that moment? And in that moment, I was talking about the director. He wrote the screenplay, and he's like, oh, I'm such a great writer, and I didn't think about all the racial implicit stuff, and but I did, but I did it, but also whatever. It's just... (laughs) See, this is what I'm talking about. I want more of these hot takes. We need to do an episode on Blade Runner, the new one. Actually, both. Okay, there's the so many one. problems with Blade Runner also I know. See, that are really save irritating. It, save it, save it. We'll do a whole episode on, like, cyberpunk imagery and the world of, like... Well, then we have to wa- re-watch these horrible movies. Yeah, well, this I will be say, good. I, I love your hot takes. And, like, that, it's exactly <laughs> it. If we'd watched Ex Machina before this, you'd have been so much more fired up. You'd have been bringing that heat to season two that I needed for this. Not that you didn't bring the heat. You did. But I'm just saying that would have kicked it up to a habanero level. You'd have really come, in, come in pissed off. I was, I so I spent all day being pissed off about Ex Machina, and I was like, I'm just going to present it as being a thing. Yeah, and... I'm saying channel this. Like, like, lean into your fury. Well, Pick I'm not up like that to... sort of anger. But I'm not like a, an angry person, so it doesn't come naturally for me to do this like out on in performance level, right? Like, I was like, performance-wise, I'm not. No, I've watched the emotions churning under your skin throughout this. Uh, you you you've seemed very upset, but you still want to maintain like a veneer of professionalism. Well, let this it is just a, this let isn't it a, run out. I'm not I'm not a film major, you know. No, I know, but you don't have to be to talk about film. That's the whole fun thing about it. Just ask our best friend Tara, who's a film major. I mean, but she is a film major. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and she's really. But talented. I'm sure she would love what we've just been saying. I don't know. Maybe she loves Ex Machina. Probably. I have no idea. It's like the same thing. Okay, you're not. I don't know if you're going to get this reference, but everybody's saying that Kill a Kill is like a feminist anime. I'm going to get that reference because we've talked about it. I know I've never seen Kill a Kill, but I've looked at, I've watched clips and seen enough of it to know that I don't know how you can write that into a feminist uh, context uh, well, or through a feminist lens. But that was like the main argument. They're like, oh, it's like. Yeah, I don't know. Also, knowing other works by that creator such as Gear and Logan, and seeing how that person treats female characters, I'm just going to have to say a hard no on that being a feminist work. But that's what I'm saying. This could be a thing for season two. I mean, even Folklore. the first episode, there's like this whole thing where she like doesn't want to wear the outfit, and the yeah, outfit yeah, is yeah, like fancy. Save this, save this, save this, save this. We're going to have a Kill a Kill episode. We're going to have a, we're gonna have a Blade Runner episode. More. Oh, this is going to be great. Yeah, no, we're channeling your fury, Maddie. That's... That's the theme to 2022. Embrace the hate. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, no we're going to dive. We're going to dig into the whole. We're going <laughs> to. We're going to just go down the rabbit hole of all the things that really. If set you want to talk about cyberpunk, we can do a Blade Runner review and I'll, I'll be a part of that. But I'm not going to do like a whole thing about things that make me angry because I want to be happy in life. I was just stuck on this. This connections that I made and I could I had to put them in, in form, but it, it's not really my character. I know it's not. It's it's entirely antithetical to your character, and that's why I kind of want to run with it. I mean, but then 
you know me well, but like other people don't. So then I'm just going to come off as we being like We have a whole like first scary. season of you being bubbly and loving fairies and changelings and trying to make the world a better place. <laughs> Let the world see your hate. Channel your ire. Well, that is, that's, that's episode one. That's, that's how ADD I am is like the level that episode one is on. That's, that's where I'm at. This is 2022. Yeah, that was like Omicron. shooting. That was like shooting a laser pointer in a smoke and mirrors exhibit. That like they're fun. all related, but also like, would anyone else bring him up the way that I did? No, probably not. Yeah, it's like when you're on Adderall and drink like seven monsters, and it's 3 a.m. and you're working on your final, and you've kind of got all of your source material laid out, but you also can't feel the tip of your tongue anymore. And like, what's that? Is that the sun? Have I listened to Block Party 18 times in a row tonight? I don't really know what's going on, and I can just taste sand in my throat, but these are all my source materials. I guess I'm going to cram these into a paper. Is that a thing that you experienced being an art history major? Because that's not something that I've done in my life. Oh, yeah. And Adderall wouldn't work for me anyway, because it's like medication I need to be prescribed. <laughs> so I have concerta. In case anyone's curious. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, just go ahead and dox yourself. Cool. <laughs> well, season two off. Great start. <laughs> and now I don't have to watch a movie that evidently makes my wife extremely upset. You can watch it with Nicolette. She'd watch it with you. I don't really have much of a... I, like, had a inkling of a desire to because of the acclaim and the studio, A24, that made it Yeah, lots beforehand. of acclaim. But, like... Certainly not enough to get around to it in the last seven years. And after this discussion, it's like, oh, well, I know really now. Yeah, I, I think I'm good. So thank you for that. Well, thanks so much for listening to episode one of season two. If you want to send us some things that we should research or commentary about Ex Machina and why it's good, you can send it to addstoryteller at gmail.com. Well, everybody, thank you so much for being here with us again tonight. <laughs> what? What? What's your problem? <laughs> Nothing. No? Okay. Then you want to sign us off? Who have you been all night long? I'm Maddie. You're Maddie? I'm fucking Tucker. And thank you so much, everybody, for joining Wait, us for I'm season. I'm Tucker. What? Oh, shit, girl. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> thank you all so much for joining us for season two. We love you. I love you. Catch Thanks you next so time. Much. Bye.